Well, good morning. I'm excited to do week five in our study of the book of Colossians. So if you have a Bible, I hope you do open it up, open up your device. You'll also find the scripture reading inside the front cover uh, of your bullets in there. So you can look on there and there'll also be some on the screens behind me. However, you need to find it, uh, find the book of Colossians. And we'll be looking at chapter two this morning from verse six to verse 23. Colossians chapter 2. The Word of God says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands." By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcised of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ." Let no one disqualify you, insisting on aestheticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body, but they are of, of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of God. Growing up, math was not my thing. I can remember struggling through Algebra 1 and 2 in high school, and I was so glad I didn't do the advanced calculus the other kids did that I'm not sure what they're doing with, really, in the world. But I can distinctly remember also a moment in in chemistry class where we were doing a math problem up on the board, and I blurted out the correct answer and then was asked to show my work. After explaining how I got my answer, everyone in the room was puzzled. And even the chemistry teacher looked at me and said, I think you just broke science because I don't know what you just did. I might have gotten the right answer, but I got it in the wrong way. 
In college, math was nicer to me. I didn't really have to have it much until my senior year. One class stood in the way of me graduating from Western and being done with math classes forever. And that class was managerial economics. This class was feared among business students because it's a verified fact that business majors don't know how to do math. It's verified. We know how to add and subtract, but when you get further than that, we were told on the first day, he said, you've come into a real math class today. We're going to be doing calculus. We're going to be doing all of this deeper math uh, together. It was a fusion of economic theory with some calculus along with it. And the teacher literally started out the first day going, hey, I know you all probably aren't very good at math. (laughs) Just don't ask me any questions. Follow along with the equations because you don't really want to know all the inner workings of some of this. Just nod, do the equations the way I tell you, and you will get through it. No problem. Well, in our passage this morning, Paul wants us to do some math. Not senior-level economics math, but rather he wants us to be able to calculate truth and falsehood. See, false teaching had invaded the Colossian church, and there's a ton of reading and discussion you can do about the background of these folks, but Paul gets to the core issue in Colossians 2, verse 8. Colossians 2, verse 8. Here's what he says. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. It's a pretty serious warning, isn't it? And it isn't just a word for the Colossians, it's a word of warning to all of us, that there are people and movements and even professing Christians who want to take you captive to falsehood. There are things out there that want to take us captive and keep us bound in deception. And he gives two warnings, I think, bring out uh, ways we can be taken captive. First, he, he tells us that we can be taken captive through being intentionally deceived. Notice he, he has in mind that someone could be taken captive through falsehood. He calls it empty deceit that could be taught to us. There are folks who will intentionally spread false things to you. Sometimes there, there are people that will share false things with you and might just genuinely believe those things and not realize they're false, but other times they will know it and share it. Paul warned Timothy that false teaching spreads like gangrene. Now, gangrene is a disease that causes your skin to rot, and if you really want a fascinating picture and you've got a strong enough stomach, after the service, Google gangrene and hit the images and just see what pops up. If you don't have a strong stomach, I'm warning you, You don't want to do it. But it will paint a picture for you that Paul says of rotting flesh. And he says the point for us is clear. There are things that will spread among us that are deadly and that masks can't keep you from. There is deception that abounds. But there's a second warning here, isn't there? Verse 8 again, he says, See that no one takes you captive by philosophy. What is what does that mean? I don't think he's bashing Aristotle or Plato or the general sort of study of philosophy. What philosophy means is the love of knowledge. He warns us that, that of the false teaching outside of us, but now he wants to warn us about human nature within us. He wants to warn us that sometimes we can be too 
curious for our own good. Sometimes we can want to know so much that we end up believing and knowing things we simply shouldn't know. Have you ever heard somebody say, just have an open mind? Well, we never think about how dangerous a mind that's too open can be. Consider this, you wouldn't just let anyone or anything into your home, and yet often we will let just anyone or anything make its home in our mind. In fact, the Bible would warn us that a mind that's too open leads to your brain falling out and it getting captive to something, it getting eaten, it getting taken away from you. Open minds always get closed eventually, and that's a warning to us. What's your mind closed in on? So Paul warns that false teaching could take us captive, but how can we tell what is true in false teaching? Well, Paul, that says that there's a math problem we can do. (laughs) That this is where the math comes in. He tells us that false teaching adds, subtracts, multiplies, and divides. We'll work through each of these. First, false teaching adds to God's word. False teaching adds to God's word. I want us to look back at verse 8 again. Look back at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, by empty deceit. Look what he says, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. First, he warns that there are those who would seek to add human tradition to God's word. And Jesus warns of the same thing. In fact, in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus had a run-in with the Pharisees, and they wanted to have a big argument and discussion about hand-washing. Now, this wasn't the sort of hand-washing you do for health reasons. Jesus would probably encourage you to do that. This was ceremonial washing where they would be considered spiritually unclean if they didn't wash their hands a certain way for a certain length of time before they eat. They thought that this exterior thing could cleanse the interior of them. And Jesus sets them straight. And he responded in a way only Jesus could by quoting the Old Testament to a bunch of Pharisees, to a bunch of lovers of the good book. Look what he says, Matthew 15, verse 7. He says, you hypocrites. Wait, Jesus is always so straight to the point. I love it. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? And he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When we add human tradition to God's word, it dilutes God's word, it takes us captive, and it makes our hearts far from him. We do this so often because we, deep down inside our sinful nature, often think that we know better than God does. We often think that whatever rule we would make is a thousand times better than any rule he's already made. But there are other times we add to God's word, and it's by adding our experience to God's word. Consider Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. Look at this. This is kind of an interesting verse here. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on aestheticism, we'll look at that later, and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from 
God. He warns about trying to mix our experience with God's Word. And they were having these visions of angels, we see. We don't know fully what was going on, but these folks were making a big deal about these visions that they were seeing. And in Paul's context, it was likely that many of these false teachers had some sort of Jewish background and were making a huge deal out of the fact that it was angels who brought the law to Moses. Therefore, nothing could ever undo that law for them. And And yet, we see that the book of Hebrews would tell us that Jesus is better than angels, that while this this law, that this Mosaic law, the Old Testament law is important, it wasn't ultimate, they were kept on appealing not only to the fact that angels brought the law, but that they kept having these visions that said they should continue to do this. They should continue to only eat certain foods and worship on certain days and wear certain clothes. They had these visions that told them to do that. And Paul is saying that whatever they might claim, it doesn't compare to God's Word. That God's Word doesn't need help. And friends, there are plenty of truth claims out there that begin with words of angels and strange visions. Consider there's, there's a well-known religious movement began by a, name, a man named Joseph Smith. You might have heard of the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who got a revelation when an angel came to him and handed him gold plates that supposedly gave him a new New Testament, a better testament over the New Testament. Or even Muhammad, the prophet for the the Muslim religion, claimed to receive revelation when an angel came to him. Even in Paul's day, Paul warned that angels can can disguise themselves, that demons, sorry, can disguise themselves as angels of light. That Paul would warn in Galatians 1 verse 9, he almost anticipates these things and says, even if an angel from heaven should come to you and preach a gospel other than the one I've preached, he says, don't listen to it. Don't listen to it. And here's the bottom line. All of our experiences must be weighed by God's word. Not mixed with it. We don't come away from our experience even as supernatural as they may seem or feel, and then let that experience interpret the Bible. So many people do this. Well-meaning believers will have an experience and then go, well, I had this, therefore I must try to read God's word in light of what I experienced. No, we need to work the other way around. We let God's word interpret our experience, not our experience interpret his word. Consider the apostle Peter. He even illustrates this for us in an incredible experience where he saw that the Word of God is supreme. This is in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter begins to speak about an experience that, that you can find recorded in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 17, where Jesus was glorified before him, transfigured, glorious before them. And look what he says. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So he says, look at all that I saw. I I saw Jesus transfigured. I heard a voice. I had this incredible experience. And then he says, 
and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention. Even more important than what Peter saw was the prophetic word that Peter had in the scripture. More important than anything you would experience is right here. Teaching is false when it adds to God's word, whether human tradition or our own experience. When we add that in, we dilute God's word. But false teaching isn't just from adding, it's also from subtracting. Specifically, false teaching subtracts from the person and work of Jesus. It subtracts from Jesus. So right on the heels of Paul's warning about deception, he turns to point us toward Jesus. Consider Colossians 2 verse 9. For in him, being Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. False teaching will seek to subtract from the person of Jesus. They'll either subtract his deity, making him just a man, or they'll subtract his manhood, making him unable to identify with us. And we should notice verse 9 gets both natures correct. The fullness of deity dwells bodily. It, it tells us and it echoes what, what he says earlier in Colossians 1.19, and that's that in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. As Christians, we confess that Jesus is both truly God and truly man. 100% deity, 100% humanity, one of a kind. The language of the creeds that the church has used throughout the centuries is that Jesus is one person with two natures. That he's unique and that he has both a divine nature and a human nature. Nature And so often the person of Jesus is one of the places where the battleground for truth is fought. Many of you might have, like me, received a knock on your door on a Saturday from a group called the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, well known for being, by their other name, the Jehovah's Witnesses. I know in Owensboro we've, we've had them for, for several times come to my door, although they never want to visit again. I'm not really sure what I'm... What, what I did to turn them away, I was very nice, but they never want to come back after I chat with them some more. But this group teaches that Jesus is the greatest creation of God, but is not God himself. And so we can see how even these other movements that will claim to be Christian, one of the things that they want to go for is to attack and subtract from the person of Jesus. But on the other hand... It's not just to take away his deity and, and, and leave some of the, created, the, the humanity there. Others would be tempted to make Jesus simply a prophet or a good moral teacher. Isn't that what our culture seeks to do? Everybody wants Jesus on their side until it actually comes to looking at what he says, right? But we saw in Colossians 1 two weeks ago that this simply isn't an option, that we must not think that subtracting from Jesus is simply some fine tooth, some very fine hair and theological jargon. No, it actually has real implications on your life. What you do with Jesus is the most important thing you could ever consider. And it's not just a matter of doctrine, it's also a matter of life. We subtract from Jesus when we're content to have Jesus as Savior, but not to have him as Lord. 
We can take this home. There's so many of us who would love, who love what Jesus does and love what he says. And yes, we're all in for team Jesus until it comes time to actually do something he told you to do that you might not want to do. And the Bible is clear that you cannot have one without the other. Romans 10.14 says, Everyone who would call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And many of us are content to profess our love and our salvation in Jesus while denying his lordship over us. And Jesus says, if we love him, we'll do what he says. And if Jesus has never said something that you didn't like to you, then it's likely not Jesus you're serving. If you've never come away from this book and been like, I don't, but in myself, I'm not sure I like that. Then friends, it's probably, it may not be this that you're serving. The math of false teaching is addition to God's word, subtraction from the person of Jesus, but it's more than just addition and subtraction. It's also, third, false teaching multiplies requirements for salvation. It multiplies requirements for salvation. These false teachers were obsessed with days, diet, and duty. That's what they were obsessed with. They would judge others who were not following the same days, keeping the same religious days and feasts, those who would not have the same diet as them, and those who wouldn't do the same religious rituals the way that they would. And by doing that, they missed the whole point of the law. Look at verse 16. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival a new moon, or a Sabbath. It's clear that for these false teachers, special days were huge. They had taken these sort of Old Testament feast days and the weekly Sabbath, and they said, all of you must keep this. I know you're not a part of the nation of Israel. I know that, that, that what, the, what, what the Bible says about this, but you need to keep this because of what, what special revelation we received. But Verse 17, Paul responds to this and says that these days, as much of the Old Testament law, are shadows pointing us toward Jesus, who is the substance, the fulfillment. That these things, verse 17 says, are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That they're meant to point us to Jesus, and once Jesus has come, the shadow is done away. They were obsessed with days, but they were also obsessed with diet, with diet. Verse 16 tells us they had questions about food and drink. Verse 20 to 23, he speaks of regulations, where he said they had all these rules about don't handle, don't taste, and don't touch. I think this is likely in reference to food laws. Certain things of, hey, you got to eat kosher, you got to wash your meat a certain way. They might have even said, don't eat meat at all. They had all these different rules. And it also says in verse 23 that they had a sort of severity of the body that likely had to do with fasting and not eating or drinking for certain extended periods of time. And they said everybody had to do this. They wanted to control and set up rules regarding what they could eat and what they could not eat. Look with me, verse 20 to 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Referring to things that all perish as they're used. There's food, right? It perishes, it goes away after you eat it, right? According to human precepts and teachings. 
These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity of the body. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Here we see, he says, be careful. There are going to be false teachings who would come to you and use the Bible and twist God's word and practice in order to deceive you. Many times you're going to have people come to you and they're going to say, well, this is true and I've got a verse for it. We've got to be careful. We don't base our whole theology around some isolated verses and we think about the Bible as a whole. Look at our current passage, for example. I could open up to you plenty of places in the Old Testament and Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy where there's laws about diets and days. And outside of their context, outside of understanding what they're there for, outside of understanding what Paul says in Colossians 2.17, that they were shadows of realities that came in Jesus. And since the substance has come, we no longer need the shadows. I could convince you that you should probably not go eat your McDonald's after this. But friends, we need to make sure that as we're thinking about things, we run it through the whole of Scripture. We think about what all of the Scripture has to say about things, and we evaluate it, and we take time to do it, because we could look at Colossians 2, or you could go to Mark chapter 7, Acts chapter 15, Hebrews chapter 7 to 10, and beyond, all show us that that law, though it serves a very important purpose and served a very important purpose, has been done away in the coming of Jesus. And since Jesus has come, we're no longer bound by the shadows because the shadows point us toward the substance. It points us toward the realities of rest and holiness that are found in him. Think about it. You don't want, if you're walking next to your loved one, you don't want to walk next to their shadow. You want to walk next to them. And the shadow is important because it tells you it can point you toward them so that you can walk with them and know them but you want to walk with them. You want the substance that it points toward, the person that it's there. And in fact, Paul in Colossians 2 shows us a little more about what it means for Jesus to be the substance of shadows when he deals with the third leg of what these teachers love to talk about, and that's their duty, their days, their diets, and now their duties, particularly the duty or ritual of circumcision. They said that if you were a real Christian or really spiritual, you would have been circumcised. You would have had the circumcision uh, on the eighth day. And he shows us how Jesus was ultimately the substance to which that ritual pointed toward. Look with me at verse 11. Colossians 2, verse 11. In him, being Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision not made or made without hands, By putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. He tells us that the circumcision of the body was meant to point us toward a deeper reality called the circumcision of Christ. And he goes on to describe a little bit more about what this circumcision involves. Verse 13 to 15, look with me. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcised in your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, 
being can- by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. We could spend tons and tons of time in this text because there's so much packed in here, but, a sh- but in short, true circumcision, the circumcision of Jesus, what all this was pointing toward was three realities. One, the reality of new life in Christ. He says, we've been made alive together with him. Second, the reality of the forgiveness of sins, having been forgiven of all of our trespassing by the canceling of the record of debt that stood against us. And third, the reality that the demonic rulers and authorities have been disarmed by the death and resurrection of Jesus so that they can't condemn you anymore. Isn't that good news that he has there, that the princes of darkness have nothing they can truly condemn you for because the only one who, can, who could condemn you has saved you and has disarmed their very powers and authorities. And the false teachers in Colossians had let go of those great realities by multiplying days and diets and duties. They'd missed the whole deeper reality that Jesus was enough that Jesus was the substance of shadows, that he's the point, and Jesus alone was enough, but these false teachers would rather have traded him for multiplying these works and trying to add it to him. False teaching adds to God's word, subtracts from the person of Jesus, it multiplies requirements for salvation, and fourth, it divides the body. It divides the body. I want you to notice Verse 18 and 23, he speaks of this word aestheticism. Now, that's a, that's a big word, but all aestheticism is is the extreme avoidance of certain things. Being as far away and avoiding something as you can, whether it's food, people, places. And these false teachers were seeking to remove themselves not only from life in the church, but life in the world. And we're prone to think like aesthetics too sometimes. Let me give you an example. How many of you believe that you'd be more holy and happy if you cut yourself off from the world and went and lived in a cabin on the lake for the rest of your life? Everybody just leave me alone, right? So many of us think we'd be better off that way, but that's simply false. Just removing ourselves from the situation or buckling down and telling ourselves that we're not going to touch that or do that or by our own power we'll stay away from these sinful and frustrating things. It just doesn't work. Verse 23 tells us as much. Look at this. These, so he's talking about all these rules we often set up and this aestheticism of getting away from other people. These and these have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He's telling us that while cutting ourselves off from the world and the church and seeking to be by ourselves may seem real wise and spiritual. You know, you kind of look like the guy in the robe way up on the mountain, just sort of away from everybody. That seems real spiritual to us. He says, no. Because it has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Don't divide and run away. He says what we need is not to divide. What we need is a greater pursuit. We need a greater pursuit. Oftentimes, friends, we're tempted to do this not, not just by cutting ourselves off and, and being away from the world, but 
We also do this when we draw a small box or a fence around what a true Christian is. We do this so often when we take personal rules or practices that may seem wise and then begin to enforce them on others as if that's what the Bible actually said for others to do. Let me give you an example. I don't drink alcohol. Never touch the stuff. I have no desire to survive my own personal reasons that I don't do that, but I can't make a rule that's best for me and push it onto you. I mean, Jesus himself turned water into wine. The Bible warns against drunkenness, but it seemed as if Paul in 1 Timothy told Timothy, hey, it might be good for your stomach that you take a little bit of a drink. Some Christians could really divide by these rules and say, well, real Christians... They're not going to touch the stuff. Real Christians, they would never have done that. And people do this all the time. Bible translation, music style, jeans in church, whatever it might be. We want to always fence ourselves in and get like, I am the only true Christian and everybody else is wrong, right? We want to draw the fence around us. And we make a two-tier church and a two-tier Christianity, the real ones and then everybody else. But God's body isn't divided. It isn't two-tiered. Verse 19, look at that with me. He says, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. He says, we as a church, as, as people who know Jesus, are one body, one people, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And false teaching divides by making us pull away from the church and from the world, whether that's physically and literally, like the, the sort of weird things you see on those true crime shows where they say, go live on a compound. That's what we're talking about. But we're also talking about the way we judge others in this room who might have some different practices, whether it be regarding schooling or music taste or whatever it might be, and going, well, if they were real Christians, they would do those things the way I do them. He says, be careful. Be careful, because those have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. False teachers will seek to divide us by adding to God's word, by subtracting from the person of Jesus, by multiplying the works required for salvation, by dividing the body. We're now able to calculate it. It's a pretty simple math problem, isn't it? But what do we do to stand firm against it? What's the solution to these things. What, what are we supposed to do? How do we protect ourselves from false teaching? We protect ourselves from false teaching by looking to Jesus. By looking to Jesus. Jesus is the variable in our false equation that will keep in our faith equation that will keep us from falling into falsehood. Jesus is the variable in our faith equation that will keep us from falling into falsehood. We're told that back in Colossians chapter 2 verse 3 where we're told that in Jesus is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All of them are hidden in him. Or you can consider verse 6 and 7 of Colossians 2 that we read together this morning. He says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. In a world where it's so often hard to know what's true and what's false, look to Jesus. 
In a day where fake news abounds and partisan politics seems to be more important to us than discovering the true, the good, or the beautiful, he says, be established in Jesus. And in a season of pandemic and panic, the word of God would prescribe for us thanksgiving. He would say, abound in thanksgiving. You know what's so fascinating? That one of the ways the Holy Spirit would tell us to fight back darkness and deception is just to be more thankful. He says, abound in it. That's part of what it means to continue in this. But thankful for what? Of course, thankful for the many blessings we have for life and health, for family and church. But Paul wants us to overflow in thanksgiving for Jesus and for his work on our behalf. Why isn't that the message we share with the world? In our day and age, there's so much we could talk about. Why aren't we sharing with the world that God has taken on flesh in the person of Jesus and come to live among us? That he came in obedience to God's word to live fully faithful to God's word, that we might often get God's voice and human tradition intermixed and confused, but Jesus didn't. He was the very embodiment of God's word so that by following him, we can cut through the noise and get to the very core of God's law. We can be forgiven because Jesus never added to God's word. He lived on our behalf and never mistaking those things. Jesus lived his perfect life free from sin, not just as God, but also as a man. He knows what it is to be tempted and tried. He can identify with us. The Bible says he's able to sympathize with us and able to be a substitute for us. Because he's God, he's able to live a perfect human life. And because he was man, he was able to live in your place, die in your place, and rise so that those who, are, who have faith in him can have hope that we will rise again one day. And we should never subtract from that. That this work of Jesus, his perfect life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead doesn't need anything else added to it. The Bible says that when we believe in Jesus, his perfect life is credited to us so that when God looks on us, he looks on us as if we lived the life Jesus lived and he looked upon Jesus on the cross as if he was punishing Jesus for sins he never committed. His death in our place means we don't have to face eternal death and his resurrection to new and glorious life now and forevermore can be ours. He said it is finished in order to tell us that there's nothing further required to add to it. And finally, Jesus doesn't divide his body. He united us by uniting us to himself. There's a real mystery the Bible has when it speaks about how we are very real in, bond, in, in, in union with Jesus. We are bonded together with him so that he's our head and we are his body So much so that when persecution came against the church in the book of Acts, Jesus said to Saul, why are you persecuting me? He he identifies and is in such union with his church that messing with his church meant messing with him. And he has died to rescue a body, a people for himself. He lived for us, died for us, rose again for us, so that through faith in him we're united to him, so that we're in him and he's in us. And that is the glorious mystery we saw last week, Christ in us, the hope of glory. 
Friends, God has made a way, regardless of what falsehood you've walked in, to turn from it and to turn to Jesus. And there's time for, you can do that right where you are this morning, praying in this service or speaking with one of us. You can drop a card uh, on your way out in the basket, and one of us would love to follow up more with you. But the math here isn't calculus. It isn't managerial economics. He says, look to Jesus. Whether you've lived your whole life in deception and God has has woke you up today to what you've been walking in, or whether you now see that there's been some subtle things creeping into your life, the prescription, the solution, the variables the same. Look to Jesus, the way, the truth, the life, who stands ready to receive you. May we plumb the depths of the glorious treasure of wisdom and knowledge that are hidden in him and respond in worship to that truth. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are good. Father in heaven, you are glorious. Thank you that you've given us a way to recognize false teaching. Thankful that you've made it clear for us that we just need to look to you, that you've done all that is necessary to save us from our sin and ourselves, that you've offered us the the circumcision of Jesus, new life, forgiveness of sin, and no more condemnation for those who are in you. And I pray that if there's anybody within the sound of my voice today who does not know you, that you, by your spirit, would in these next moments draw them to yourself. They'd fill out a card and leave it in the basket. They'd pray right where they are, Jesus, save me from my deception. You're the way, the truth, and the life. And for others here that are believers, Lord, help us to stand firm, to continue to look to you, to trust you. And Lord, to do the math when it comes to what we hear, to be careful, discerning Christians who love you and serve you. And we ask and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.